Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. In this episode, we will continue our series of interviews with award-winning teachers. My guest today is Dr. Brittany Peterson, who is an associate professor in the School of Communication Studies at Ohio University, and she also serves as the e-learning director for the Scripps College of Communication. Last October, Brittany was named the Ohio University Presidential Teacher, which is the highest teaching award at Ohio University, a title she will hold until 2020. In addition, it was recently announced that she has been awarded the University Professor Award for 2018 through 2019. That award is selected by students. And so she holds, um, we don't have a, a, a hat trick because there's not three awards, but you hold both of the major teaching awards at the University. Brittany, thank you for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me, Scott. So I want to start um, by um, talking about uh, the context of who you are as a teacher, and then we'll get into some details about that. But to start with, can you talk about some some of the courses that you teach and sort of the things that you try to accomplish with your students? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I teach classes at the graduate and undergraduate level, and primarily I teach courses in organizational communication as well as in research methods, interpretive research methods, and then more specialized classes in communication and new technology, as well as classes on organizational membership. And so that's kind of my area of expertise that I'm able to teach in. So organizational communication might be a term that not everyone listening to the podcast would be familiar with. Can you talk about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So organizational communication, we like to think about how when people come into um, organizations that they're a part of, whether that's businesses or um, other types of group work groups that you're a part of, what it means to kind of be a part of that. So how the people in the room work together to create that experience um, and how they understand that and how communication works to shape it. And so on a more practical level, that looks like talking about things like leadership and change and uh, diversity and difference and um, just how all of those things play out based on the people who are in the room working together in an organization. And then some of your more advanced courses that you might teach at like the 4,000 level for undergraduates and then also graduate students on organizational membership. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, that's my that's an exciting thing to talk about. So um, I teach a course called Voluntary and Involuntary Membership. And so that particular course, um, I look at kind of the extremes of what it means to be in an organization. So I look at nonprofit volunteers um, and what that looks like to be a volunteer member willingly participating, not necessarily getting paid um, in those kinds of settings, and then on the other extreme to look at involuntary members. Uh, And so in the classroom, I take my students to various types of organizations. So we go to local organizations like Good Works or Passion Works, so local nonprofits in the community. Uh, but then we also go to organizations that house involuntary members, so people who don't necessarily want to be members of the organizations that they're a part of. So this past fall, I had the opportunity to take my students to two different prison facilities. Actually, one is a community-based correctional facility, SEPTA, up in Nelsonville. And then we also went to Southeastern Correctional, uh, which is a facility that is in Lancaster, Ohio. And we're going to dig into those because that was one of the fascinating things that I wanted to talk to you about. But before we we get into those, how big are your classes typically that you teach? Yeah, absolutely. So usually my courses are um, 25 to 30 students, but I do teach a larger um, 100-student section of communication and new technology. 
Mm-hmm. And so I teach that in the active learning classroom here in uh, our Schoonover Center. It's a pretty cool space, and I'd love to tell you about it if you want yeah, to hear more. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. So when we built this and when we renovated the building, we were really lucky to be able to kind of take inspiration from some other programs, other um, institutions, and I believe it was University of Minnesota mm-hmm. in particular. And so this classroom space, if you can imagine, is a very large room. I think it seats between 135 to 150 people. And in the room, there are these guitar pick-shaped tables. And so at each table, you can seat up to nine students or nine people. And they're all wired tables. So there are plugs so that people can plug in their laptop computers or their devices, whatever it is that they're using to work on. And they also can connect their screens to a series of televisions that are around the room. And so at each table, they can work collaboratively with those nine students or even with three or six or however you break it up um, to work on project-based learning using the computer screens that are in front of them. And one of the cool things I really enjoy about the space is after having moments and time where the students take, um, take tasks and they work on them, they work to solve problems, they then can report back. And so I can uh, pull the digital content from the screens they're working on up to these three giant screens that are placed around the room. So all 100 students can look up and see what one particular table has been working on during the 20, 30 minutes um, that they've been assigned a task. And so that's really neat because it's a opportunity for students to report back on the learning that they've engaged in and then see what other teams are doing and how they approached problems. So um, let's stick with the room. Uh, and, the, and is it the new technologies class that you mainly use? That yes, for? communication and new yeah. technology. So so in that room, uh, when you're teaching in that space, um, my guess is, is that you're not lecturing the whole time. Right? No, no, definitely not, which I think is one of the challenging things for a lot of people, but also one of the exciting opportunities. And so um, the room is not set up to be a lecture room. If you walk in and you would hope to lecture, it's kind of a challenge because there are TV screens that divide the room. And so I find myself um, in the moments where I do spend a little time delivering content in a more traditional sense to the students, meandering around. I actually make like figure eight type patterns all around in every nook and cranny, um, intentionally trying to make sure I'm projecting my voice, but also trying to make sure that the students stay engaged so my movement catches their eye and they they follow. Um, But having said that, um, in a hour and 20-minute class, I maybe do that for 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. 15 at the most. Um, Most of the time is spent uh, in these projects. And so I run kind of a quasi-flipped classroom approach where I ask the students to come prepared. They need to, they're accountable for completing their readings or whatever material that I've asked them to review for the day so that when they can come in, I might clarify a few challenging or difficult concepts. And then from there, we can go ahead and give them the task for the day and they can work on that and take it and Mm -hmm. run with it wherever wherever they want to go. Now, interestingly, um, in a couple podcasts back in, in our series, we talked about um, whether it's good to have you know technology out while you're in a classroom situation because of the distractions. And yet this this room is completely built for that to happen, you mm-hmm. know, for them to have their technology out. How do you manage that as a teacher so that you know they're staying on task even though they're 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 encouraged, mm-hmm. you know, to have their technology open. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Scott, because I find myself, um, that's, uh, it's like a paradox, paradox or a challenge for me because in my tradition, more traditional classes, like the smaller classes, I don't, I don't love having the computers out all the time. Uh, but in these kind of, 
kinds of learning spaces, it enriches it so much. Mm-hmm. And so what I do in these spaces, we start at the beginning of the semester kind of by talking about how technology can be a distraction, uh, but then talking about how it can also be an asset. So we sort of suss out um, how it can look in both of those types of enactments when students use it in mm-hmm. healthy ways and productive ways and in more challenging. Um, and from a practical standpoint, uh, I use Twitter in my classroom. And so sometimes I'll have students live tweet, so they're having to pay attention. Um, so they're being asked to use the technology intentionally. Um, mm-hmm. I'll ask questions and I'll call in particular tables to Google something for me while we're talking. Uh, in addition to that, the walking around um just physically seeing what's on their laptop oftentimes bring you know shifts their attention back a little bit if they're doing something. And then honestly, I'd say the last strategy is sometimes I'll call them out mm-hmm. um, on things. And so I'll say something like, all right, I've seen a lot of you on Facebook now. Let's bring her back. You know, I'll, yeah. I'll kind of make a joke of it. Um, and they laugh. I think that's funny. And so, um, you know, I don't say it in like a condescending or demeaning kind of way, just sort of like, in a, all right, folks. I don't know what's going on, but it's time to reel it back in. <laughs> yeah, you know, let's yeah. put down the online shopping. I love those shoes, but okay, now time to focus. So I make a joke of it. Mm-hmm. What, what's an example of a type of project that you know they would do in a day in your class? Yeah, so we've had I've had them do lots of different kinds of things. Um, one of my favorite activities that we've done had to do with creating an infographic, and so we had read a story about cyberbullying, about online bullying, and the students came to class having read that. And then what I asked them to do as a table was to create an infographic about online bullying in any sense. So they could look at like um, bullying in elementary schools. They could look at um, bullying in teenage years, whatever that was, any kind of online bullying if they wanted to talk about kind of like bullying and suicide prevention. So they could take it in whatever direction as long as it dealt with with bullying. Um, And they were to look up research studies um, that related to this. So in addition to the one they had read for the class, they had to look up other content, other research-based content, uh, and then put all of that information into an infographic. And what ended up happening at the end of that is um, they had the entire, almost the entire class period to create that. So they would assign tasks. They'd be like, all right, you look for information on this and you that, and you figure out which uh, infographic software we're going to use that makes the most sense for what we're trying to do. And, you know, you two begin putting the content in and everybody emails so-and-so here. So they worked on this project. And then at the end, um, the class voted on the best infographic. And I actually had other faculty members in the School of Communication Studies rate the best infographics based on appearance content um, having the references on there, all of those kinds of things. And then the best team ended up earning extra credit for mm-hmm. that particular activity. So they were motivated and excited to do it. Um, but they also then disseminated those over Twitter, which was neat to see because mm-hmm. uh, they got some retweets and some attention because of it. So it was exciting. And, and to be clear, these were not uh, like graphic design or visual communication students, right? No. Um, this particular class draws students from all across the campus. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of that's kind of one of the neat things is that at a table of nine students, you might have one student who even has ever created an infographic or knows what one is beyond seeing it on the internet. And so it pushes some of them out of their bounds. It teaches them new skills. So that's one example um, of using infographic software. There are other kinds of softwares that I've had them use. Collaborative, like group-based softwares. The like one, Slack or something Slack like is that. the one. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> so I had them use Slack one time. And one class, they started by using Slack in class, co-located. Mm-hmm. And then I actually did not have them meet the next class. So they had to, mm. they began their work both in person and working digitally. But then they had to complete this 
assigned task of developing an imaginary event was what they were tasked with uh, in this virtual space. And so they felt the real challenges of of communicating that way, but also reap the real benefits um, of seeing how an online space like Slack can house so much information and um, pull people in in different meaningful ways than uh, people that are sitting in the same room mm-hmm. together. And that's real life. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. a real job experience. Absolutely. And we talked about that, that that was something that they could talk about in interviews. Like, I have had experience using Slack, and mm-hmm. I think it's exciting. Here's how I've used it. When, when you're thinking about um, a class period that's coming up, you know, a, a little bit ago, you described it's a little bit more complex than just going in and lecturing. I mean, you have to think about how you're going to be intentional about using the technology. And maybe that's a project like you just described. But you also said I might decide to have a group, you know, use Google to look something up. How much effort do you put into that? Or is it more of a spur of the moment thing? It's a good question. So now that I've taught this particular course a few times, it's a lot easier. Uh, But when I was first preparing to teach this particular course, I would spend between an hour and a half and two hours prepping for every single class. It was intense. And part of that is because this particular content area is not what I studied during my doctoral studies. So Mm -hmm. it was an exciting move to be able to learn new new and fresh content for me. Mm -hmm. But part of it was learning how to be a faculty member, to be a professor in a space that I had not had experience with and one that pushed me out of a comfort zone. Um, And so thinking through, you know, if I were a student in a space like this, how, how would I learn best? Like, and thinking about how different types of students learn. So it can't always be exactly the same thing. I also would include, for example, um, individual writing sessions or reflections. So the students who were more internal processors or needed some time and space to think um, that they would be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have tables, um, people raise their hands, but in a class of 100 people where you're having contributions that way, you may only get 15 or 20 students that participate. And so that's why I use Twitter. And so I tried to kind of balance the way um, that I engage with students. And so, yeah, it was it's a lot of work, but yeah. I think that it absolutely pays off. I It's my favorite, one of my favorite classes to teach. I really enjoy it. Yeah. It, it's interesting because, you know, when I first started teaching, and I'm guessing you as well, um, all the prep time was really in making the PowerPoint slide mm-hmm. deck. You know, yeah. I mean, it, was, it was how am I going to get content across to the students? And it almost sounds like that's almost secondary for you because most of that's already done mm-hmm. um, because of the quasi-flipped approach and you spend most of your time thinking about how to orchestrate the class period. Yeah, I spend time trying to help, trying to figure out how I can set up the classroom structure that, so that students can learn best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's more of a class ma- classroom management issue more so than how do I lecture this content and deliver this content to the students. There's very little of that. Yeah. Were there how did you learn it? I mean, I know that a lot of it had to be trial and error, but did you find information that was helpful in making this sort of transition? Uh, well, there, I did get some resources from um, an area on campus. I think, I don't remember if it was the Center for Teaching and Learning or another colleague. So I, I wish, um, I got some active learning activities that Mm -hmm. were shared with me. And so that was more things like, you can use think, pair, share. And so there were sort of skeletal structures that you might be able to lay over courses. Uh, And so I got that content, but a lot of it was, like you mentioned, trial and error. It was seeing what worked and then also seeing what the students were getting 
bored of. Like if I had done um, the same kind of activity over and over, like here's here's a task. Okay, yeah. work in your group of nine. All right, now report back. Um, that got a little stale. And so one time because, because of that, I had instead students um, had to brainstorm. And so they were asked to write um, kind of these different propositions, and they wrote them on post-it notes. And what I ended up doing, there was sort of a for and against sign, and I think it was te- it was telecommuting. So they were supposed to think about what are the arguments for telecommuting, like the benefits from a telecommuter's perspective, and what are the drawbacks or the downfalls from a telecommuter's perspective, and then what are the benefits of telecommuting from an organization's perspective, and what are the drawbacks from an organization's perspective. So they were asked to write four different post-it notes. And then they had to go up. I, I actually took a big, gigantic piece of string and I strung it up on the ground um, in the big in the front of the room and I made a grid. And then they had to go up and they were supposed to place things by other people's post-its that looked familiar. Right. And so because of the space and because of the number of students, um, I used an activity that is, that is not new, um, but the physical movement, uh, I think, helped them to kind of process in different ways. And then I had four students go up there and kind of rearrange and almost do a qualitative analysis and say, here are the main themes that mm-hmm. I saw. So it was kind of exciting. Um, so being challenged and pushed in new ways to think to think about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what's the what, what's something – you're not teaching this semester. You taught last semester. Mm-hmm. What was something new that you did last semester that sort of resulted from – you know, the sign. Maybe trial and error is not the right word. It's trial and adapt. So, what was something that you did that you adapted last semester that you sort of learned from your experience? Yeah. So, with the communication and new technology, um, a couple of times I have taught, uh, I do a debate. And so, the debate is whether or not online dating. Mm-hmm. Is is a meaningful is a good way to approach dating. And the first time I did that. I had students work together to develop arguments um, at their tables, and then they were supposed to have um, one person come up and kind of go through those. And that was fine, but it just got a little rote because they read and they read and they read, and everyone else was kind of like, hmm. So the next time... I did it. Um, I like set the class, and it was like side A of the class versus side B of the class, and mm-hmm. so they were almost um, in in more of an authentic debate style. So it wasn't just okay, like what is this group's perspective in this one? I actually kind of pitted them a little more against each other, and um, and there were each table was supposed to send one solid researched argument to a table on their side and then there was the spokesperson and and one person from each side went up in front of the room and they actually did engage in more of a um, point counterpoint so there was more interaction across the students and then I also added in having students live tweet during that time Mm -hmm. and so um, it wasn't only involving the students that were talking it was involving everybody and so they were challenging some of the points the opposite team was making as they were doing it Um, and some some of that was funny like they'd put up, you know, funny images and things like that. Um, and others, other things were um, serious counterpoints that they were mm-hmm. making. So it was neat to kind of see them engaging on all those different kinds of levels. So that was one change that I made based on something that worked, but not as well as I wanted to see it work. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually a lot of what teaching is about is figuring out sort of general things that you're comfortable with doing, but then you adapt how they you know how you how you actually deploy them or execute them, however you want to describe that. Um, so, 
in this class that we've been talking about, you know, that's obviously in a room that's specially designed for that type of teaching approach. Have you changed when you're in other types of classrooms the way that you teach because of that experience? I would say, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, having having that different kind of space made me rethink my approach to teaching a little bit. And so even now when I teach in these 25, 30 person classes, it is a lot more facilitative. There's a lot more um, orientation around um, particular activities or even prompts or questions for the day. And so the learning experience in this active learning class in that comes 3200, the communication and new technology, that has helped me to kind of rethink what I'm doing in my other classes in an exciting way. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, actually, um, just going back to you as a teacher, w- when was the aha moment that you decided you wanted to be a teacher? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny because my, the aha moment that comes to mind was actually more of a someone else pointed it out to me. Hmm. So I was an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I had a double ma- I had a double major. I actually earned a Bachelor of Arts in Communication and a Bachelor of Business in Human Resource Management. And so at that point, I could have gone either way. I could have gone into HR um, and kind of went the business route, or I could have kind of shifted and, and gone into what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. And a graduate student at the time was uh, one of my teachers. And I took a class on, I think it was interviewing. And toward the end of class, she goes, you know, Brittany, you actually can continue on in your education and earn a master's degree and you can teach and they pay for your education. She stopped and she looks at me and she goes, you're really good at this. Hmm. You should think about that. Um, And so that was kind of the moment. It wasn't like, oh, yes, this is my destiny. But it was like, wow, someone saw potential in me and thought that this might be a good fit. And so I need to slow down a minute and think about that. Hmm. Uh, And the more I kind of chewed on and marinated in her words, I was like, okay, you know, this this might be good. Um, And so I did go on and I earned my master's at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And then I took a year off and I spent that time in industry. And I I loved it. I had great opportunities. I worked for an insurance company as a marketing trainer. But being out of the classroom in the university, um, away from kind of the the refreshing that happens each semester, the excitement of the new class and of the new students and a new group of people and new content, um, that wasn't there. It was just a different type of type of work environment. And I, I greatly miss what it was like to be in the classroom and be around the energy that students bring. And I was like, you know what, that that's, that's what I want to do with my life. And so it was the time away, I think that really um, shifted for me to make me decide to go back and get my PhD and mm-hmm. on to be a professor. So clearly teaching is a part of your identity. Um, have, were, were there moments where you were um, challenged because of your decision to go into teaching? Like, you know, were there were there ways that you had to change bits of who you are to make that work or, you know, that sort of thing? I mean, I think that when you go into teaching, especially when you go into academia, mm-hmm. um, the spaces that you live are more limited. And so I think a lot of the challenge for me has just been navigating that. Like, what does that look like with a family and particularly extended family? I think that oftentimes we don't necessarily do a good job of explaining um, what it looks like and what it means to have a job in in the academy and how um, 
there are only so many opportunities and they're not just available all the time. And so explaining that to family, like why I can't live in the state of Wisconsin where my family is, um, is hard for them to mm-hmm. understand. Um, and so that just helped my family and I to reshape our identity and say, okay, like, where are we? We're here. We love it here. This is our home. Um, and we're excited about that. But mm-hmm. that's kind of the biggest pivot. I'd yeah, say, that makes a lot of sense. It's something that's unique for faculty in higher education yes. to some extent, mm-hmm. not exclusively. But um, so um, let's um, go back and talk about your um, courses on involuntary membership. So you you talked at the beginning of the podcast how um, your most recent courses, you took them to nonprofit organizations, but you also took them to what you and I would call correctional environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an obvious interest, interesting <laughs> thing to talk about. So you've got a group of 25, approximately, yep. students walking through a prison. Yep. How did they react to that? Uh, well, if you could see my face right now, they reacted <laughs> with giant eyes and wide yeah. open mouths. Um, you know, they reacted like you might expect. So just to kind of set the stage, I took them to two different facilities. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever done that. I've taken them before to sort of this lower, it's more of a low um Oh, low security facility mm-hmm. um, and then more of a moderate one. So at the facility in Nelsonville, it's um, more focused on rehabilitation. Um, you usually find individuals who are on their way out of the correctional system. And so they're working programs often for drug rehabilitation, things like that. And so it is not your typical thing that you see on television, for example, where you're yeah. like, oh. Um, and so walking through there, they were kind of like, okay. You know, there were there were some surprising things or things that they were had a hard time wrapping their mind around. Um, but then when we went to the medium security facility was where they uh, really experienced kind of the shock in the, like you could see the shock in their body and the way that they carried themselves. Um, there was tenseness in their shoulders and, you know, they were um, hovering and whispering about things that they were seeing. And so we were, we walked into a dorm and um, it was at the very end of the visit at the kind of higher security prison and it was really loud. And when you walked in, there was the, there were the correctional officers that were sitting in this um kind of elevated desk space. And then in like a half circle around that, there were wings um, of incarcerated individuals. So there were like three branches, um, if you will, um, and that were separated by bars. So none of the incarcerated individuals were uh, out mm-hmm. right there at the moment. But what happened is, is that the... Correctional officers, it was very loud. They started screaming, and they were screaming obscenities at the inmates because the inmates were saying um, sexually graphic things to my students. And so the correctional officers were screaming swear words at them to back up and get out of here, and they were using very vulgar and aggressive language. And my students were just – it was like the breath went out of their bodies. Like they they froze. They were almost paralyzed. And they were in no actual danger, but it was scary. I mean, they were like, whoa, uh, because they hadn't ever been in a setting like that before. And so they talked a lot about that afterwards. We debriefed that and how they felt and how what it meant um, to have the correctional officers interacting that way with the inmates and and what their perspective was of that. So it was a really cool learning opportunity for them uh, to see that. They also had the opportunity at both facilities to talk with inmates. And so that was really a good learning experience for them. And they were encouraged to ask whatever they wanted. But of course, the correctional officers were co-present. Mm-hmm. So there's 
I think only so much that inmates would feel comfortable sharing as mm -hmm. others were there. Um, but my most proud moment during that time was I had to leave. Um, our class had ended when they were at the lower security prison. Our class time had ended, and I and I had to go and pick up our kids from school. And I Your said, personal kids. my yeah. personal yeah. children, yes, yeah. my my children at elementary school. So I picked my son up, and I said to the um, our tour person, I said, well, I, I need to leave. And, you know, our class time has ended. And he said, well, you know, they're enjoying the, the um, college students are enjoying so much talking with the, they call them residents. They're the residents. Um, they're welcome to stay. And so I left and I had about 20 of my 25 students that stayed an extra hour to mm. talk and ask questions and interact with these residents at this correctional facility. So that was really exciting for me to see that they cared, they were invested, they were interested, um, they wanted to learn. So it was a neat, proud moment as an educator to see them pressing into their own education, even though um, their time limit had expired. Yeah. Not, 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 that doesn't happen very often in no. normal classes, right? <laughs> not so much, no. So in that class, um, you know, obviously that's something, those two experiences side by side is something, and, and they actually had some other field trip type experiences in that class too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, those are high impact learning experiences for students. Um, as, as you progressed through the semester, um, I assume at some point they did something that was more traditional, like a paper or mm -hmm. something like that. How did you see, you know, how did you see those high impact learning experiences maybe result in products that you wouldn't have seen if you, you know, because I'm sure you've taught the same class not doing that. Mm -hmm. So what did you see different by the time they got to the end of the semester? So with kind of this more active learning where they're really going out and feeling these things and doing them and seeing them, whether that's in this involuntary context like the prison uh, or in the nonprofits, they learned um, a lot in the doing. Um, the, one of the final products they did was actually more involved with the voluntary side of the class. Mm -hmm. And so they did a project with a local nonprofit called Passion Works. They uh, raised awareness for the organization um, and had a event they called Athens Flower Day. And so they did things like paint our graffiti wall and they passed out flyers and they had it. They started a student organization. Mm -hmm. And so to get back to your question, their final product for the class was a presentation and a paper and an analysis of this experience. So it's wonderful and exciting to work with organizations, but it's also challenging and um, exhausting and demanding. And so they got to live through all of that. And in their final products that they wrote up, um, there's just a level of richness there that if they were just reading um, or even watching content about these experiences and not living and having to do them, that that would have resulted in a different kind of product. The mm -hmm. examples, the richness of the examples um, and the theoretical connections they were able to make because of their experience, because they they breathed all of this. Um, it was tremendous to kind of see that. And, and the arc across the semester, when at first they were like, we don't know what we're, you know, they didn't mm -hmm. know what they were doing and they were um, very uncertain. So to kind of see that play out was exciting. When you're doing a class that involves, you know, uh, very strategic relationships with an organization like Passion Works or the the um, facilities um, north of us, um, how far in advance do you have to start working on that class? Because, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, all of us as teachers, sometimes we're like, okay, I've got a week before class is starting <laughs> to get the syllabus done. You can't do that. No, not at all. Uh, so usually I have to plan um, – 
at least a month or so in advance of the semester at minimum. So for the things like the prison visits, um, if I'm going to go in the spring, I would send an email to them either like late December or very early into January and say, you know, sometime, well, not even early January because we start the semester, but a month in advance, I'd send an email and say, I would like to bring my students here. Here are four weeks you know, that I'm looking at, what works for you. Sometimes it takes a while for them to get back. And so mm-hmm. a month, six weeks in advance, I start those emails. Now, if I'm actually going to work with an organization like Passionworks, where my students did a project for them and, and launched this huge event, uh, I try to start talking to them more a semester before, because I want for that to be meaningful for the organization too. So mm-hmm. it's not just this one-off, no continuation, no um, commitment, no real value. I don't want it to be more work for the organization. Right then it's meaning or value added for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the exciting things about the project with Passionworks is that we were able to start this student organization, like Students with Passionworks, I think is the official name of it. And I've continued to see as the advisor that they're adding more and more students to it. So Mm -hmm. it's continuing on. I know they're helping with some fundraising efforts that the organization is working on this semester. And so it's neat to kind of see um, that something from the class has continued to produce fruit. Mm -hmm. All right, let's switch gears kind of dramatically. So (laughs) the other job that you have besides being a teacher scholar is that you're the director of e-learning for the college um, that you and I are both in. Um, When did you start teaching classes online? So that would have been somewhere between 2006 and 2008-ish. Like My first Mm -hmm. few years of my PhD program, I started teaching a course or two online every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And since you've been in this role here and teaching classes here, you've actually been able to see over the course of your teaching experience, but because of your role, Mm -hmm. also working with other teachers, you've kind of been able to see how the way that we think about teaching online courses has started to change, you know, and and develop and and progress. I mean, what what do you think some of the best practices are now that you use and that you see other teachers using? I think that online learning sometimes can appear scary to people or can be easily dismissed. And I think that because uh, I think it's easy to look at online and just say, oh, you just put content and you slap content up there. They read it. They might make a comment here or there about it. Um, and that's it. You know, or you might develop these online quizzes and blink, blink, blink. Okay. Um, you set up the class and you hit the go button. And so I think that online learning gets a really negative reputation because of this perhaps model that was used when we originally envisioned what it meant to have an online class. So much has shifted now, though, and that's just not how online learning is typically done. Um, it is a much more engaged space. It's a really exciting space. Um, And I use the word space intentionally because I view my online classrooms uh, as just as much a space as my face-to-face ones. So what can I do to create a learning environment for those students, both online and face-to-face? And so I think about the same kinds of questions in both classroom spaces, virtual and otherwise. So for me, one of the really exciting tools that's come out in the last, I don't know, it's been probably a while, I've been using it for maybe four years, is called VoiceThread. And so VoiceThread is an online software. Here at Ohio University, we're really lucky that it's integrated with our learning management system, Blackboard. But even if it's not at, at an institution that you might be teaching at, you can still use it on its own. So mm-hmm. the this, this software VoiceThread is neat because it allows you to create almost an online space for people to come and participate. But it still is a asynchronous space. So a lot of what brings students to online learning is that they might be locationally bound, and and the only opportunity to continue their education um, and learning is to do so online. 
and keeping that in mind and that a lot of students or some students at least who pursue this are uh, professionals working in different fields and industry or that they have jobs um, is that it's hard to say you have to be in this virtual space right now at this moment. So instead, VoiceThread allows you to do this asynchronous. So what that practically looks like for me as an instructor or professor, I'll post a short video, um, two, three, five minutes at the most, usually it's around two, three minutes. So kind of similar to the active learning space here on campus. I give a little content. I might clarify something that I think is a particularly difficult or chewy concept from the week that might be, um, that might need a little bit more instructor depth. And then from there, I'll post questions. Or in some classes, I have students pose questions. But we'll have questions that we orient around for the week. And so they are asked to either comment via audio so they can record in the same way that we're recording this podcast with their laptops or devices. They can even do it on smartphones if they have that. Um, or a video. And they can record that right in the software or upload it from their, from their devices. And so you click a button and you play through all of these videos or all of these audio clips as the students in, answer the question. And there's a deadline for that. And then the later half of the week, so it's kind of like you say Wednesday. So you need to answer the question by Wednesday. Well, then between Wednesday and Friday, you need to be, or Wednesday and Saturday, you need to be interacting with each other. So find a student in class that has made a comment that you find to be meaningful and, and reply back to that student. Start a conversation. And so that kind of space takes it out of the text-based format that we so often know. And there are certainly benefits to the text-based um, use in online learning. There are spaces and places for it. But it brings it into more of a feel where they get to see the other students in the class or at minimum hear them, mm-hmm. right? If people are uncomfortable, um, there's something to a voice. Right? You can learn a lot about a person by, yeah. by hearing how they communicate. It, it almost sounds like the way you describe how you approach using VoiceThread, it seems to me like you're getting far more discussion and interaction in that class than you would in a face-to-face class. It's true respects. because everyone is expected to participate. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Have you found that when you um, like when you're thinking about the types of questions that you would put into VoiceThread mm-hmm. rather than you know maybe some other modality, are there certain types of questions that tend to work better in that type of uh, um, interactive video, mm-hmm. high rich communication um, cue type of environment? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good question. I think that sometimes dealing with really like challenging or high risk topics in that kind of setting. It, that's more difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't just throw an open-ended question out there about some very controversial political or social issue and be like, what do you all think about that? Whereas in my face-to-face classroom, I might yeah. because I can manage that, manage it um, in the moment a yeah. little bit better. Yeah. And so the types of things that I ask in online learning environments um, might be a little less loaded. Now, having said that, that's that's just not always the case. I mean, I've had students say things that are um, offensive or challenging or pushing mm-hmm. the bounds of social norms, and uh, we then talk about it. Like, I have to, I shouldn't say I have to, but I choose to debrief and kind of engage the whole class in some of these conversations and say things like, um, after the last presidential election, there certainly were a lot of um, intense feelings around that. And I had students email and say that they hadn't participated for a while. And 
And so I came on and I said, look, you know, I know that um, this is an intense time for a lot of people for many different reasons. And I will promise you that in this class of 25, there are students that feel exactly the same as you and probably in the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And so um, what I ask is that we come into this space and that we're respectful of other people's beliefs and ideas and identities and that we don't attack each other. Mm -hmm. um, so not that I was inviting a conversation about the election, uh, but it, it popped up. When you're talking about an organization, there were things that popped up that they were talking about. And so just little reminders like that um, I found to be necessary. So even though I didn't necessarily invite them, they still kind of come in sometimes. Yeah, he did it. You know, in hearing you talk about both types of learning environments, whether it's the online or the active learning classroom, you, I mean, just hearing you talk, you clearly have a great sense of how to read the room, um, whether it's a virtual room or an actual classroom. How, how did you learn that? I mean, you know, because as you're talking about your students and trying to manage you know, different viewpoints on the political election or, you know, all those other things. I mean, you, you kind of understand how to draw them in and, mm -hmm. and not control them, but facilitate. And that's a, that's a, there's an art to that. You know, wh how, how do your instincts drive you on that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it, instinct is the big thing, right? I think that um, if I, I pay a lot of attention to nonverbals. Mm -hmm. I like see how my students physically react to some of the things that are happening. Um, occasionally, they will verbally react to the things yeah. that are happening, and you have to backpedal. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I've had, I've had students say things to me um, and say, "Look, like this came up in class, and this is how you handled it, and that was." Um, that was not okay. Like I personally felt offended by that. And so I've had those gut checks, those moments where I'm just like, I'm sorry, that was not what I intended to do. Mm -hmm. um, the particular example I'm thinking of, I, I um, had students in the communication and new technology class look up websites on orthorexia, uh, which is a um, condition. It's, it's similar. There's like the, there's, Oh, not an orthorexia. It was um, pro-ana websites, so pro-anorexia websites. Mm -hmm. And I had a student in class that had participated in those kinds of things. And so she um, communicated that my comments about these websites, I think I said that um, they were startling and difficult to look at. And she said that that was, that was hard for her to process mm -hmm. and hurtful. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, the next semester – I was like, okay, I need to be better about every content site I'm at. If I'm looking at hate group websites, if I'm looking at you know paranorexia websites, these kinds of things, if I'm bringing this content to my students, I need to be really hyper aware that there's a student in my class that's part of a hate group, that there's a student, there are probably multiple students. There are multiple students that might be either um, addressing or dealing with anorexia, might be in the midst of it and believing in it. You know, like we we don't know where they're at. Uh, so that's one way I've learned is through being mm -hmm. corrected by students, being called to the map, looking at their nonverbals. The other thing, honestly, is is watching other teachers. One of the cool things that we get to do here um, is observe other faculty members teach. I think that's a really neat part of our job. And so watching how other people manage that um, and how they are in their classroom spaces and picking up tips and tricks, um, just like little cues. Uh, my classroom management strategy, I use a lot of self-deprecating humor. I'll make fun of myself a lot because I'm not actually funny, but I'm very funny when I make fun You're of myself. You're a good Midwesterner, though, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think that watching what other people do uh, and seeing if it works for you and how you might adopt bits and pieces of it is also another helpful strategy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, for your university professor award, you get to design a class mm-hmm. and teach it over anything that you want. I know. Not many people get an opportunity to do that in their career. So what are you going to teach? Well, I think, because I put forth two proposals, um, but I think the opportunity that I'm going to go with is teaching a course that's on nonprofit volunteer organizations volunteering, but with the angle also um, intersecting with um, rural Appalachia. Hmm. So I want a large part of the class to talk about and look at and think about what does it mean to live in Appalachia? What does being Appalachian mean? Um, And kind of pressing into some of the stereotypes around that in the public discourse right now. But also, how do these nonprofits that are in our area work with folks and um, partner with and embed with? And what does that mean for students who come here and never leave like the 10 mile radius of our city? And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's just really neat because oftentimes undergraduate students in particular, I think they come here and and OU is wonderful and Athens is awesome and they don't find a lot of reason to to drive very far out um, and kind of see the surrounding communities. And so I think that there's a lot of exciting potential about that. So I'm not I'm not sure I'm working it out, but that's what I think I'm going to do. Yeah, that's cool. It, and you know, it, and this is probably true in most any location. We we underappreciate the number of non governmental organizations mm-hmm. that really give lifeblood to our communities. Absolutely. And you know, just um, I mean, you'll find this, and and I know that we've observed this already. That there's a there's an interesting web of government, private non-governmental organizations that are, you know, not not profit-driven um, that sort of are in this entangled web all trying to do the same thing of, you know, lifting up a region. You know, yeah. how do you do that? So I, I've got one last question, and this one is kind of weird, but I've been, <laughs> you know, we have, I've had a series of, you know, award-winning teachers on, and, and I found this to be an interesting question to ask. So you've received not one but two awards, um, and, you know, right now you're, um, you've got the highest uh, award that a teacher can have at Ohio University. How do you think getting those awards has changed you? Mm. Well, first I'll say I'm in good company because the person <laughs> sitting across the mic from me has also received both of these <laughs> awards. I should turn the question back on you. Um, gosh, how I don't, it's it's humbling. I mean, I think that it's very humbling to get both of these awards and within like a 12 month period. And it makes me feel almost a greater responsibility to do better. So when you asked me what class I wanted to teach, I actually proposed two. One is more about social justice in the prison system, and this one is about rural Appalachia and and nonprofit. And that's the one I know less about. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it might even be the more challenging one to do. I think it's more risky and more scary. And so I think winning these teaching awards um, makes me feel – not like I owe it. I mean, that sounds kind of negative, but just like I've got this like accountability or this weightiness to um, to to take this particular university professor award and um, try and do something that's going to be most meaningful for the students in the class. Like what, you know, how can I help them to learn something that otherwise they would never have the opportunity or the experience to do? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I sat for the for the university professor award. I sat in a room full of like, 12 or 15 undergraduate students. And I was nominated by my students. This is this is an award that's entirely won by students. And so I actually feel like this award um, has more yeah. weight in terms of changing my behavior or my, my way to think about teaching um, because I feel like I owe it to them. Like they've chosen me because they see some potential in me. And so what is it that I can do and learn and change and push um, in order to kind of co-learn with them in meaningful ways? So I just, it's so exciting. It's such a such an honor and such a humbling experience to 
to be able to be given that. Well, obviously, I'm really proud of you. And and I will interject that I was the chair of the search committee that brought you to campus and hired you. So you were. Um, so <laughs> thanks you know, for that. <laughs> yeah. We're, so we're obviously really proud of you. And, and it's exciting to hear um, what it is that, that you're planning on doing. And just congratulations on receiving those awards. It's very well deserved. And appreciate it. Thank thanks you. for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so. for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Good. My guest today was Brittany Peterson. Dr. Peterson is an associate professor in the School of Communication Studies and also the e-learning director in the Scripps College of Communication. A link to her professional bio on the School of Communication Studies website is in the text accompanying this podcast. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available on several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook and reach out to us. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a great day, and thanks for listening.